Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai. And this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events, and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. Last summer, all eyes were on Afghanistan. The US was finally withdrawing its troops and bringing its 20-year war to a close. Meanwhile, the Afghan army was collapsing in the face of a renewed Taliban offensive. On August 15th, Kabul fell to the Taliban. It's now month six of the Taliban's Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan 2.0. Their government still has no formal recognition, but seems to have proved enduring, at least. Hundreds of thousands of Afghans are refugees, mostly in neighboring Iran and Pakistan, but elsewhere as well. Afghans and foreign governments alike have begun to adjust to the reality of Taliban rule, and international media has mostly moved on. But while the war is over, Afghans still live on the brink. The healthcare system faces collapse, food shortages threaten millions with famine. According to the United Nations, a staggering 97% of Afghans face poverty. U.S. sanctions and a particularly cold winter may end up taking more Afghan life than 20 years of war. To understand the events of the past six months, we spoke to Bashtana Durrani, an Afghan human rights activist who fled Kabul after the takeover and is now a visiting fellow at Wellesley College in Massachusetts, and Imran Feroz, an Austrian-Afghan journalist who was a forceful critic of the American war in Afghanistan. But first, I caught up with New Lines' own correspondent in Afghanistan, Fazl Minolla Khazizai, to ask about the situation on the ground. When I last spoke to him back in August, he had been surprisingly optimistic about what life might be like in the Second Emirate. He told me that, like many Afghans, he felt safer and more secure than he had before the Taliban took Kabul. After so many years of war, it at least meant an end to the fighting. Six months on, I wondered whether any of that optimism remained. Uh, right now, <clears throat> we are uh, in the end of winter. The weather is getting um, pretty good. We are getting closer to the spring. We are getting closer to, uh, to hops. Um, and, and also we are going out of winter. People are happy. The things uh, in the bazaar and markets are more normal uh, than it was in previous months. And there is hopes with people that with the uh, start of March or with the start of New Year in Afghanistan, things will get better. Some countries will recognize the Taliban government and trade, business, other economical projects will be uh, open again and, and Afghan will move to a better situation. Right now, uh, people are hopeful and there is um, a kind of optimist, optimistic um, for local ordinary Afghan for future compared to the past. You've traveled all around Afghanistan reporting for, for us from letters from Kabul. What do you think the prevailing mood in the country is at the moment? People are um, suffering from economical situation. People are uh, starving in, in most of our remote areas. Um, I visited families that um, for nights they slept angry without food 
I, I visit a family in Logan province that all winter, which is um, four months, they didn't have any stove, any heater, anything to, to keep warm. Um, in the meantime, they, they, there were some nights and days on them that they, 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 they stayed hungry. Um, so situation in provinces is um, horrible. When, when you go out, um, you, you will not enjoy from the peace and security which we um, achieved them after uh, American uh, withdrawal. But instead, you will, you know, the situation will make you cry. It will uh, just, just take you away to a different world of of um, sorrow and sadness. So, only in big cities we have hope. We have um, normal life, but um, in villages, in countryside, in provinces, when you go, um, yeah, it will kill you if you have conscience. It will uh, take away any joy and rest you have. I mean, it sounds very harrowing to hear it. This is the, this is what the real economic collapse looks like in in daily Absolutely. life. Uh, have you? Yeah. Are certain parts of the country worse off than others? Uh, as you know, that um, Afghans are farmers. We are. Um, this is the country and land of farmers. We have agriculture and farms that uh, keep our life going. But unfortunately, we are badly affected by drought, uh, badly affected by um, or, you know, lack of water. Um, and also the war, you know, the, the, the chemical weapon which were used by American and NATO, it destroy our farming and agriculture um, income. Um, <clears throat> so when, um, when you go out, uh, we, we have not the same income that we have them years ago. When you go out of the uh, cities, we don't have the similar, the same water we have them years uh, ago. And also when you go out, we don't have the same facility for farms and agriculture as we have them years back. Mm. <clears throat> when you go out, uh, you will see a new face of Afghanistan, a face which Afghans were not familiar with them. So you will imagine I'm I'm in a I'm in a country of of um, Africa or, or I, I'm I'm in a place like Yemen, which which is isolated and humiliated and 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 was starving and suffering from from economical situation for years. So you will not see Afghanistan as it was before, which is green, full of water, full of farms, full of um, happy people, you know, with, with, with uh, a smiling face. Uh, this time, when you go out, you will see just lands and farms turn into deserts. You will see the, 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 the gardens of apple, apricot, almonds, which dried people use them for for stove, you know, for 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 heaters to keep warm. Yeah. And you will see children that they are suffering from nutrition. You will see young boys weak with, with weak bones 
with with um, sad face, and you will see people only talks and complain about uh, about lack of food, lack of water, lack of heater. So the face of Afghan village is is a sad face, um, unlike Kabul, unlike uh, Herat. I mean, you, even during the American, the years of the American occupation, of course, you traveled around a lot. It sounds like you're saying that it was, it's even worse today than you saw it during that period. Economically, economically, yes. Uh, uh, When I was traveling during the American invasion, um, at the time, we have a pivot road, but we could not drive safely. We were absolutely uh, harassed by government um, official forces and also by government back at Malaysia. We were also worry, wor- worried about the IDs, bombs, explosions, about the, you know, bombardment. At that, at that time, we have different concerns and the, con- the main concerns for Afghan was security and peace. And as you know, human are, you know, you know we, we are, um, uh, social uh, and and we have social demands. So at the time, our demands was peace and security. But this time, we have security. I'm driving alone in my car all around the country. I'm enjoying uh, parking my car anywhere I would like to to park. I'm driving 24 hours a day uh, at night. So there is no um any kind of worrying that I had before, but this time our main concern and worrying is food. I visited a family in Logos province, which is just in neighborhood of Kabul. It's about one and a half hour away of presidential palace. I met them and he says that I am working as a he, he had a you know hand wooden cart working in bazaar and he said for days i can't afford to have a lunch in bazaar because i have no income and he was complaining about the lack of uh, employment uh, and lack of income and he was comparing the current situation with the past telling me that in the past at least there was work in, in in open market. So there was construction work, there was business, there was, you know, um, other type of um, trade going on. People could work and afford to, to buy food for themselves. But this time there is no work in market. There is no money in bazaar. And this is um, a great challenge. Uh, that not letting Afghans to enjoy the peace they gain after 20 years of war. You're painting quite a complicated picture of life in this new Afghanistan. The last time we spoke, you told me that you felt safer under the Taliban than you had before. And one of the things I think will surprise a lot of people is that actually a lot of people were cautiously optimistic after the Taliban takeover, because they thought that perhaps it would mean an end to the fighting. It sounds like that that has happened, 
that the Taliban takeover has meant that there is more security now and just day-to-day -day security mm -hmm. and the war has ended. Yeah. But that, yeah. in a way, the insecurity now is coming from what seems like almost a total economic collapse. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, as you know better that even in the previous regime, before the Taliban, 80% of our budget was out of um, U.S. help, out of uh, waste, uh, out of the help that came from the waste. So 20% was our income. And right now we have um, only 20% uh, of internal income. Uh, plus we have uh, crisis of, you know, the collapse, uh, crisis that was born out of collapse. A lot of people that they have saving in the banks, unfortunately they are not uh, allowed to withdraw enough uh, amount of money uh, a week. A lot of uh, businesses that were going on uh, because of the sanctions American bought on Afghan, their businesses now, um, you know, it's not collapsed, but let's say it's collapsed because they cannot do any kind of business right now with the uh, um, uh, true banks because uh, they, they are not allowed to do bank transfer. A lot of companies that they were doing construction work and a lot of Afghans were working with them. Now their working is stopped because they have no money and the banks are not paying them enough to continue their work. Mm. Uh, lots of people that they are, they are official workers. They, they, they haven't been paid for, for months. Uh, it means that they don't have salary. So the, 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 the economical crisis which is which, which born after the collapse is very huge, very big, uh, very serious. I am sure it took the lives of Afghans and if, if, if our um, asset um, um, do not get unfreezed by, by the U.S. state, I'm sure that it will take more lives of Afghan and it will bring more disaster or, or, or increase the misery of Afghan. And how has all of this, this economic collapse, how has that impacted the response to the new Taliban regime? I mean, have the Taliban been able to maintain effective control of the country? Is there a lot of anger now directed at the new government? As I told you before, that all Afghan, all Afghan, wanted Taliban because of peace and security. They, you know, they they had enough of uh, insecurity. They had enough of corruption. They had enough of um, bombardment and, and casualty. But right now, because all the many were banned or stopped uh, from from the hands of Afghans and the work, the business uh, inside the country and outside the country, they all were affected badly by the section which was uh, imposed by, by the U.S. Right now, Afghans are hungry. You know, they, are, they, are, they, 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 they want food. And by by the spring, that it it will be in the mid uh, March here by the new year, Afghan New Year. I think Afghan will 
will go out to the streets. You know, Afghan will shout loudly um, on Taliban, uh, shout loudly on on the world to to pay attention, or at least took away part of the section which uh, directly affect local people, directly affect local businesses, directly affect uh, non-government organization and uh, organs in Afghanistan. So now, Afghan wants food, and and this is their right. They, they, they are allowed to do that, and it might be in a way that will will make uh, the Taliban quite unhappy, because if they are shouting out in the street, it might turn to a trend, um, as 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 uh, uh, we we have experience of them in in Middle East, um, uh, in the south of Arab Spring. But if um, regional countries and some uh, um, other countries out of the region support the Afghan case against the U.S. to unfreeze our acid, then I think the situation will get a little bit uh, better than what we are um, thinking of. Do you think that there's a chance if these protests do happen that the Taliban might sort of moderate their their behavior internationally in order to get the the sanctions lifted? I am sure the Taliban are aware um, uh, that in Afghan New Year, by the uh, Afghan New Year, there will be a wave of protest um, against them for economical reforms and for political reforms, but economical uh, economical reforms as by sure. And I'm, I'm sure the Taliban are aware that if they do not announce an inclusive government, the world will not open any kind of window to their face. And therefore, their interim government, you know, get quite older uh, than uh, it should. Um, I'm 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 sure they are aware of these uh, challenges, but I'm not sure if they are serious to bring um, any kind of serious um, changes or reforms to help the situation get uh, normal. So therefore, I'm quite um, uh, disappointed um, about the Taliban willing to bring reforms and willing to bring uh, uh, a big changes uh, with, with their policies and behavior with the world, uh, a bit uh, softness to, to announce um, actual government, which is uh, a bit more inclusive than now. Um, so therefore, I'm a I'm little bit disappointed. It doesn't feel as if they have a lot of political opposition. I mean, in the first few weeks, after the Taliban victory, there was a lot of discussion in the international media about the, the National Resistance Front headed by Ahmed Masoud, Ahmed, the son of Ahmed Shah Masoud. But yeah. they haven't been able to offer much in the way of resistance, really. There isn't a lot of political opposition left, is there? No, no, no. I, I'm, I think and I'm sure that there will be no strong political opposition against Taliban, especially from the Northern Alliance and from the son of Ahmad Shah Massoud, because um, 
this obsession of old and they were involved in corruption they were involved in the war crimes they were involved in the brutal civil war of 90s so there is no local support for this element in afghanistan but i am sure that new opposition will born by the new year a new opposition of youth neutral youth that they are directly affected by the long, long policies of the taliban by the wrong economical policies of the taliban so i am sure that there will be an opposition uh, and the opposition will raise from the streets of kabul and they will have the support of nation they will have the support of men women and children of afghanistan and i am sure that is the main challenge for the taliban not uh, the corrupt element that you mentioned do you get the sense that the taliban are cracking down heavily on any um, and uh, on the ability of the outside world to find out what's going on i'm thinking in particular about your work as a reporter which of course has continued under the taliban government um just a few weeks ago we had a, a situation where the taliban released a number of detained journalists including um, one of our contributors andrew north have you had any concerns for your safety as a journalist do you feel that there that the space for you to do your work is shrinking uh, as you know better that um, the taliban even with the other islamist party they are a bit serious they are not dealing with them fairly so the taliban policy toward uh, media toward journalism toward um, opposition is um, very strict and they are uh, and they are serious with them so if you are doing anything without backup without documents without evidence and without uh, proper documents um you know the taliban will not uh, deal with you as as it was um uh, dealt by the previous regime they were, they won't deal with you um, softly perhaps let's say euphemistically absolutely. let's say uh, yeah. absolutely so um when i'm working um working in afghanistan absolutely uh, it's a risk to 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 do good work but still if if you work with evidence and you work uh, neutrally um that will you know took away the worrying and and the concerns that most other has but and i wonder um, the taliban even with other islamist party are not uh, friendly we have hizb tahrir here in afghanistan which you know even even uk um, in uk they are doing activity but here the taliban are not uh, friendly with them we have uh, other um, strong and big islamist party called hizb islami of afghanistan so the taliban are not friendly with them they ask them to take down their the flags you know the the the, the party flags mm. out of the 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 streets and houses in in countryside not in in cities anyway um i am aware that the taliban will not uh, be friendly with anyone um in, in in afghanistan out of their lines but i'm sure if you have 
um, evidence of of um, of your work and you're neutral, you will be safe. And I suppose that extends also to the protests. And we've already seen people at rallies have been forcibly disappeared. Well, and I'm, if you're suggesting that there may be more protests come the spring, I wonder if you yeah. feel that that might be the way that the Taliban respond to these, if, if it happens, yes. these widespread protests. Yes, the protests I'm talking uh, by New Year, it's uh, more different um, than the protest of, of uh, the women's, which were um, arrested by the Taliban. So the, 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 the protest I'm talking that might happen by the new Afghan year, by, by the new Afghan year, that is um, that, that protest have strong logic and that protest has support out of the Afghan society. And it will be a general um, demand of all Afghanistan. But the protest happened recently in Kabul and in Mazar. It was a protest which already, you know, people destroyed their reputation. Already people accusing them being fake, being, you know, misusing the, 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 the protest for their personal interests and agenda and and something and some other things. So saying that they were like people, they were they were fake and they were coming from the outside. They were supported by outsiders. They were supported by outside and also the people doing this protest. They are not honest. They are you know using the name of this protest and enmity with the Taliban. Then they are trying to seek asylum outside. There was too many issues that already destroyed their reputation and and there was no support. Uh, in the ground for them, uh, as as it should. But the protest that I think it will happen, uh, it will be the protest that you know, um, it it will be out of the the the, the heads of people, so that 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 will be supported widely, and they will be the slogan of them will be you know the the demands of local Afghans, ordinary Afghans. And it will Tell be me. quite difficult for the Taliban to, to 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 stop them. Tell me then, what do you think the next six months will look like for Afghanistan? Do you think that there is a chance, as you were saying, you seemed relatively optimistic that uh, things could get better once the weather improved? Um, yeah. Or do you think that maybe the current crisis will get worse depending on how the Taliban respond or whether their um, whether funds are unfreezed for the government yes if the if parts of the funds is, is unfreezed and part of the sections which affect local business and local interest you know ultimately the Afghan interest is unfreezed the situation will get better. But if the sections and and and, and our funds is freezed, um, I think the Taliban are not able to answer the demands of the local. The Taliban are not able to, you know, answer the demands of our villages, our um, women, children's schools, clinics, etc. So automatically, people will get out and will shout against the regime, 
will shout against the Taliban. And I think that will be the start of a new uh, phase in Afghanistan that um, that might uh, result in, 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 in a revolution. Fazl Minallah, thank you very much. Oh, you're most welcome, Faisal, brother. Thank you very much. What Fazl Minallah's interview shows is the illusion of stability. The war may be over, yes, and there may be very little organized opposition to the Taliban, but Afghans are still facing some of the most difficult times of recent years. But for many more, for hundreds of thousands, the fall of Kabul six months ago precipitated their departure from the country. Many have fled to neighboring countries or been forced into exile abroad. Our next guest is Pashtana Durrani, an Afghan human rights activist. She's the founder and director of Learn Afghanistan, a nonprofit which provides resources for education. After the Taliban took control of Afghanistan, she was forced into hiding. She made her way to the United States, where she is now a visiting fellow at Wellesley College in Massachusetts. At the age of 23, Pashtana is part of a generation of Afghan women who never knew Taliban rule. When people say that we haven't known Taliban, I mean, like, I have started unpacking that as a fact now. And I think we did know Taliban. Like, I come from a very ruler and tribal family, and our tribal um, areas were under the control of the Taliban, and there were families who actually fled Taliban, right? And I personally met people, my family members, who used to live under their control and who actually moved to other cities and other places just because of that. So I think we did know the Taliban, we did know the other side. When you unpack it, of course, I have said it on multiple interviews where I say, um, no, I haven't lived under their rule. But of course, I did know in the back of my head that they is an alternative Afghanistan that might become a reality uh, now that I look at it. But also at at the fact that um, there was still hope because we had a constitution, we had an identity, a constitution that actually recognized Afghan women uh, as equals, even if it was not practiced. And apart from that, there is a hope for career, there is a hope for better Afghanistan. And at the end of the day, Afghan women are very patriotic and they do want to uh, contribute to the development of Afghanistan. And I think that was the most empowering thing that I, I remember from my Afghanistan, yeah. I mean, I suppose that's part of the point, isn't it? That even though you knew there was this alternative, this possible alternative, first of all, I guess you just simply were not sure what it might look like. And I think maybe there was a hope that, as you say, the constitution and some of the structures that have been put in place over the past 10 years, some of those things might hold the Taliban back once they got into power. I think in my head, I'm going to be honest, in my head, I never thought that a country um, that has been under, like, you know, under so much development, if not on all ends, but at least on the military side of it, wouldn't just go uh, in the hands of the Taliban. I'm going to be honest. I remember telling my mom um, when uh, when Spinboldak fell, the border region between Chaman and Kandahar. Chaman is like the Pakistani region of it. And... Um, I kept on asking her, like, I wanted reassurance. I kept on asking her, I was like, you know, this, uh, what is happening? They have just like, you know, um, it's their flag on the border. And my mom was like, this is not happening. This is not possible. It's a big country now. Just a few bunch of men cannot take it over. Don't worry. And everything like that. And in my head, I was like, oh my God, yeah, that is so true. 
the whole country cannot be taken up by a few men uh, and uh, it's not possible i'm going to be honest that was always in my head but then again like i'm i was super naive i would say well i think to some degree you've encapsulated the the concern that a lot of people felt post the fall of kabul when they were just shocked that this could happen so swiftly even with the us presence in the country yeah yeah exactly and the funny thing is when um the us people predicted that kabul uh, is going to fall in 90 days i just i i was amused at their um like you know uh, the fact that they think that they know afghanistan so much even not in the course of like so much time they didn't understand that afghanistan every time you study afghanistan when kandar falls the whole afghanistan falls and i don't i'm not saying this just because i am from kandar but that's what history has taught me in the past the same thing happened uh, back in the day when uh, the mujahideen era was uh, uh, in the making and then the same thing happened with the soviets the same thing happened with ahmed shah mirwais nikar it always starts with kandar or ends with kandar so when they said 90 days i was like oh my god they still don't know afghanistan because mm-hmm. the minute kandar falls Afghanistan falls and Kabul is not a big deal either they take it with blood, bloodshed or they just take it and that's what happened even after so many years in the country studying the country ruling the country they still didn't really understand it Oh yeah of course they didn't understand it i mean like if you uh, hang out in the green zone and uh, that's little america or little europe or whatever you call it um you li- live among your own people live you live among your own uh, subordinates and that's it you don't step out of it you don't meet the normal people that's not afghanistan for me i always said it that that's not afghanistan that actually was a foreign uh, entity on Af- uh, in a, on afghan soil because you would never believe that it's afghanistan and people who when in their new good english they could speak in good english they could uh, they had this these amazing um foreign accents you know so it never occurred to them that this is not reality like out of this zone when you go out there's there's poverty there's illiteracy there's harassment um there's people murdering each other there's government that's so corrupt there's government that is uh, harassing people too there's taliban right there right and they didn't mm-hmm. exactly um I think understood because they were living in the small bubble. Yeah, it's quite a damning indictment actually um that after so much time and as you say even working closely with a lot of Afghans there must be a part of you that thinks that to some degree some of the people who were working with the US administration were really telling them what they wanted to hear or they thought they wanted to hear. Yeah, I mean like I would say that um I I I kept on looking at the pictures of my students uh in my study and i kept on thinking i was like you know uh, i i don't know if you know about this um, medal uh, of honor that is given by the us president to the people who are brave or whatever i don't know the whole thing but it's like given once a year and all these big people come to it and stuff like that mm. uh, and i kept on thinking uh, and i kept on like you know browsing through the people of uh, who received this and there were afghans like every now and then there were like a good uh, chunk of afghans there and i kept on thinking to myself I was like you know these people wanted to hold on to a success story so badly that they didn't know they didn't even do their transparency check they didn't even follow up on what these people actually did and they just wanted to like you know hold on to that success story sell it to the us people because they were taking their taxpayers money and dumping it into afghanistan 
I want to go back to just a little bit about the about women's rights. Mm-hmm. I remember in September, um, some observers were hopeful that the Taliban would be more pragmatic about their hostility to women's rights, that basically the international pressure and the need to govern urban Afghanistan, this Afghanistan that had changed somewhat, that that might compel them um, to compromise on issues like education for girls. You wrote an essay for us in October in which you were very skeptical about that sort of optimism. Um, Looking back, would you say that you've been proven correct in that? I think, yeah, if I, if I was a journalist or a policymaker, I would have gloated so much right now in the face of all those people who had whitewashed the Taliban. I'm going to be honest. Um, but again, it's my country, so I cannot gloat, even if I, re, uh, I honestly wanted to be wrong in this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but one can be uh, hopeful, but also not naive about it, because um, in the past that has happened to the good ones uh, in between us. Um, looking at the fact that when you say Taliban and women, rights, I just want to go back to like, you know, unpack the sort of um, women empowerment that we had in Afghanistan, you know, um, people talk about women empowerment and all that. And then we had a leadership or the government structures where apart from uh, one or two people who actually showed up with their uh, wives. Um, there were no people who were actually showing up with their uh, wives. Um, there were no people who were actually acknowledging a uh, women's presence in their household. So uh, I know, I understand that I come from a conservative family and my, my own father wouldn't allow my mom and her picture on social media. So I do know the like, you know, the reality on the ground. But at the same time, when you claim women empowerment and when you claim women rights, the, uh, these politicians didn't believe in it either. Um, the, they didn't believe in women empowerment, educational empowerment either. You never saw that they actually encouraged the schooling, encouraged the policies if it was not for donors. This was always donor-oriented or donor-driven. To please the donors, they would actually uh, put women in figurative positions on higher positions like deputy minister of uh, public health, deputy minister of education or education minister and stuff like that. And then these women won't even have actual powers, right? Mm. That happened in on a very leadership role. And you can study it all um, uh, all across uh, the Afghan uh, political uh, game that was happening from uh, the past 20 years, I'm going to be honest. And it became a very uh, smooth fashion post-2015 and or post-Ashraf Ghani because a lot of diaspora kept on coming in and they spoke very good, eloquent English, I would say, and they held two passports. And uh, at the same time, they just wanted to please the donor so badly, so they would hire these women in these posts. But then at the same time, on lower level, the women and the girls struggled with the same basic thing, no running water in school, and that also disempowers women from going to school or girls from going to school. Um, Not enough salary for women at contractual teachers on school level, they would leave their jobs to go for something else or just stay at home. Who would go to a school and teach for 5,000 apps? I do know a lot of teachers who would, but it was out of necessity, not out of um, love for teaching. So let's be honest about stuff here. So women empowerment, I would say <laughs> it's, it was always donor driven. It was all uh, always donor centered and it was very um, internationally uh, introduced to us. Like it was very foreign to us. The way we look at uh, women empowerment and the way world looks at women empowerment, that those are two different things, you know. Um, 
and and I think that's where we failed. That's where we failed at looking at the real Afghanistan and what empowerment we really needed and what figurative empowerment was actually brought into Afghanistan. And what would you say then Afghanistan does need? What is the real empowerment that it needs? I'm going to be honest, Faisal. Like, um, so when my father passed away in 2020 uh, from COVID, uh, my uncles who actually are uh, this is the only reason i'm so skeptical of diaspora all the time they come from canada they have lived all their life in canada but the minute my father passed away the first thing i saw was like them telling me you have to get married and we have to take over everything your father left to you my father who actually was a big feminist left everything a thing in three shares for all his children me my sister and my brother and they're like you know we'll take care of everything just get married settle down blah 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 and that's where I realized, you know, there are millions of girls like me who need actual legal empowerment, who need actual economic empowerment. You have to earn like a man to be able to take a decision like men in families. I know it's very radical feminism and a lot of people might not agree with me, but honestly, this is what was needed in Afghanistan. You needed economic sustainability, but also uh, jobs that would be actually um, uh, known to Afghan people. Enough with embroideries. If I would have done embroidery, I'm going to be honest, which is a very big part of my culture, right? If I would have continued with hammock or embroidery, I wouldn't have been able to put two of my siblings through schools, look after my mother, look after everything that my family has done, or look after my father in the last 40 days of his life where I had to pay a hefty um, uh, hospital fees. So I just imagine all these girls in all these positions who really needed that, you know, and the foreign projects, they didn't even care about that. For them, it was like, oh, let's put this many girls in school, let's introduce embroidery projects, and a few people who give them uh, ideas as for its, uh, these projects, I just sometimes want to question the whole idea of it. Who needs embroidery where the whole country is under poverty? Why don't you teach them skills that would be needed in the future? Women needed to earn, but also sustainable earning. Three years project doesn't sustain it for the women for the rest of their lives. Uh, the same thing happened in Afghanistan. They made Afghanistan a big project, which I call a projet Afghanistan in Pashto or in Farsi where people were actually treated like projects. You come in, you make a few dresses, you make a few cakes, you sell them, you take pictures with them, and that's it, and move on. But what happens to them post that? Do you have the market for that? Do you have the skills for that? Do people actually have the money to buy the products that are being made? So Afghanistan actually needed sustainable uh, economy, but also sustainable projects that would actually empower people, not just throw money at every problem. Yeah. You sound incredibly sceptical both about how women's rights might be perceived on the ground among normal Afghans, but also about the impact that these projects that came from abroad were used. I mean, when you talk about the, the what you might call these sort of cultural products, you make it sound as if they were just ideas dreamt up in some think tank somewhere because they thought it might might look good. What should we do? What should we get Afghan women to do? Well, let's not get teach them maths and economics. Let's teach them about embroidery. That'll be a nice yeah. photograph. See, exactly my point. Right now, I run around two schools and I'm planning to launch at least uh, five more of them, right? And these are all regionally um, uh, accessible to different regions in Afghanistan. And one thing I see is Afghan women are very much into learning. Afghan girls are very much into learning and they really want to learn something new than embroidery or making chutneys and uh, pickles, you know. But that's what they were catered to. Like, you know, earn the lowest 
most rich uh, wage or like, you know, that's what you can do. But at the same time, why don't you teach them freelancing classes, which is which takes time, which those are tough, but at least they will have financial literacy in the future. Why don't you make sure that there is a good network of internet throughout Afghanistan so that people can access all these jobs on the internet, all these learning sites on the internet, and not because that it's my idea or I I, uh, I have been focusing on it a lot, but because it has been proven for India 20 years ago, they didn't have anything. They started with uh, just desktops and today they are a growing economy. I mean, I don't want to comment on their politics, but in, on their economy, they are a growing economy and that could have happened for Afghanistan. It was a clean slate, but we were too corrupt, too limited and also uh, too out of touch. All these think tank people who used to come sit in all these big guest houses, meet the foreigners with double passports and uh, talk to them in their good accents. And that's it, right? They thought everyone in Afghanistan is like that. That's not reality. Afghanistan people are starving. Afghanistan children were starving. And that has been the reality for the past 20 years. It's just being highlighted right now. How do you assess uh, six months on from the fall of Kabul and Taliban rule? I mean, I, I didn't expect a lot from them, to be honest. Uh, they, they, they don't know how to govern. They have never uh, learned how to govern. They were not taught that. The best thing that they could do is fly out to Pakistan, take pictures with a few of their journalists and uh, uh, weird politicians. And, uh, and then those politicians give them weird books. And that's it. Those are the post-ups that they could come up with, right? And that's the leadership. That's what they are, they are doing right now. I mean, if they were so interested in uh, helping their own people at the Taliban are doing the same thing what the Republic did right and the Republic actually alienated people because they didn't even believe that there were people right I remember the, and I keep on remembering this uh, I keep on quoting this family in all my interviews so that people do know what what the reality was I remember there was a family in front of Arik that was sitting Arik is the palace, the presidential palace, and these people's, uh, the, the son of this uh, family was actually taken by the Taliban, and he was an ANDSF, uh, part of the security forces. Anyways, so he was kidnapped, and the Taliban were asking for ransom. None of the people even tried um, uh, consoling talking to the family. Now, majority of the ruler of Afghanistan enlisted either in the army, security forces, police, or in the Taliban, one of the two ways, because those were the only earning uh, streams for them. And, uh, and just imagine how many people would have they alienated in this process where people came in for them, uh, asked for their sons, and nobody even responded, and they just had to leave. I have met uh, families whose seven sons have, like, you know, been martyred in this whole fight uh, in security forces. Um, uh, yesterday, I was watching this uh like, you know, the posts about uh, Shamsuddin in Kandar. He was murdered a few days ago by the Taliban and he lost his hands in a mine attack a few, eight years ago, if I'm not wrong. And he was actually dismantling the mine that was uh, there uh, by the Taliban. Anyways, he loses his hands eight years without any pay. He stays at home. And after eight years, he's murdered by the Taliban, even though they have said general amnesty. So imagine how many people in the process were alienated, murdered the same way by the by the Taliban. And the Republic didn't even, uh, like, you know, uh, 
twitch for it. And that's the reason, that's the same thing what the Taliban are doing right now. They are actually alienating families by murdering their sons, even though they have said general amnesty. They murdered another woman yesterday, a day before yesterday, just because the rickshaw driver didn't even stop for them. And they shot, uh, the, shot at the rickshaw and uh, one of the women was murdered. Another incident was the uh, a, a Talib fighter was actually beating a drug uh, addict in a village, Gargai village. And uh, when he was beating him with the gun, uh, the, the shots were fired by mistake or accident, you would say. And it actually hit a kid, 14-year-old kid, and the kid just died that instant. So now just imagine, um, this. Uh, I'm not saying that Republic was much better. Um, there were incidents like these, but the Taliban are doing it openly and nobody's even talking about it and nobody's even addressing it. Aside from the fact that they address this issue, they're telling the news media media outlets that stop uh, publishing stuff like this. Mm. I mean, it sounds like that experience, both during the days of the Republic and now under Taliban, are it's an experience that a lot of Afghans will have in their extended family. And it probably means that a lot more are going to leave the country in addition to the hundreds of thousands who've already left. Um, I know that you, you think about the refugee really the refugee crisis, the outflow since the Taliban have taken over. What is your understanding of the last six months? What does it look like for, for the people who've left? I, I actually uh, teach um, a class of 40 uh, Afghan female commanders from the ANDSF forces that we have rescued and resettled in the US. So we work with them, right? And um, like it's, it's, for me, it's sort of like heartbreaking, hopeless, a hopeless thing but also at the same time i keep on being inspired by these women uh, so much on one end these women were part of uh, an elite force that was like you know coordinating all the nitrates or missions that were supposed to be doing um we can get into the ethics of it later on. But these were actually women who actually were the first platoon that would go into houses and calm the women down when these nitrates and everything was happening. And now these women, their children, their husbands, they are either in uh, UAE uh, waiting for the visas. Uh, they're actually in the US and they're still starting their lives from the scratch. I remember last week I was talking to one of my students and she was like, you know, I'm so scared. I have a high school diploma from Afghanistan. What if they don't accept me in the U.S. colleges because I don't speak proper English. And I kept on thinking to myself, I was like, why did she have to go through so much in her life while she's 36 with three kids and she has to start from scratch because she won't be able to find a good job if she doesn't go to college, right? Not that it's a bad thing, but just imagine all these different lives that people have to live. Another person that I was talking to in LA um, uh, actually told me that there are people who are actually homeless. There is no proper structure for the Afghan refugees to be like, you know, taken in. So there are people who are actually homeless in San Diego right now, and they are Afghan refugees. And there are good efforts that are being made. So I don't want to discourage those. And there they have happened in the past too. But at the same time, it breaks my heart for a fact that everyone has to start from scratch. I mean, like there are times I miss my family. I was just going to start this uh, before this interview. I was going to talk to my mom. And I kept on missing them so much. Like, uh, I don't like 
you leave at once, you become a refugee, right? I was that uh, for all my life as a kid. I was told, you are Afghan, you are the old one out because of the way, the clothes that we wore, the way my father looked or stuff like that. And now post that, even if I'm in the US, I don't feel like I belong here because at the end of the day, I am an Afghan and I really wanted to stay back home only if time's allowed. So it, it's probably the same for many of those women who have been here or the men or any refugee the loss of potential and um, the lives that the people will have to give exactly. up is actually quite... There was a doctor, uh, I just missed her. The doctor, she really, a guy actually texted me about her. He's like, you know, we're resettling these doctors, uh, these family members, and uh, they're from rural Afghanistan and stuff. So I answered that, and then he's like, you know, this breaks my heart that there is a family that we have resettled, and she's a doctor. She really wants to practice her, uh, to continue her practice, but she's not allowed to do that because A, she's a refugee, B, her degrees and stuff are not accepted here. And I felt so bad we could have really used that doctor in Afghanistan you know we needed that but we cannot yeah on a personal level do you ever see yourself being able to go back I have to go back. I can't I can't stay in the US forever. I don't I don't think that um I'm not saying that I don't belong here. I think uh, for me, it's the best would be to uh, go back and forth. But I really want to go back to Afghanistan and do plan to go back sooner, as soon as I graduate. Yeah. Pashtana Durrani, thank you very much. Of course. Thank you so much. As Pashtana says, refugees from Afghanistan face huge challenges in their efforts to rebuild their lives. Many Afghan refugees in the United States still do not have a clear path to permanent residency and fear for their future status. But one thing its critics charge that the US has been happy to take is Afghanistan's money. Our last guest is Imran Feroz, an Austrian-Afghan journalist who was a forceful critic of the American war in Afghanistan. Like Fazal Minallah Khazizai, we previously spoke together on the podcast in September. Six months down the line, we wanted to hear how the international community had responded to the Taliban's new Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. I began by asking him about America's response. When the Taliban took Kabul, the Biden administration froze the Afghan central bank's U.S. assets, totaling $7 billion. Earlier this month, the administration announced that it would use half of that amount for unspecified humanitarian assistance. The other half, controversially, will be set aside to compensate the victims of the 9-11 attacks. I think uh, it is a cruel thing. It seems that Joe Biden wants to see Afghans, Afghans starve for 9-11 or whatever. I think it's just a purely populist move to, to, you know, to unfreeze the assets and to give half of it to 9-11 victims and their families. I think it's also interesting to mention that a few weeks ago we were talking about around 10 billion dollars of uh, Afghan assets and it suddenly shrinked. It's now 7 billion and uh, many people are wondering, you know, why, why this amount shrinked? Well, a lot of people don't even care about it and don't ask but, you know, for people who observed this very closely mm. i think it's quite problematic that uh first of all the shrinked the you know the the amount of the assets yeah. and the second thing is i mean yeah i didn't see so many people who were not critical towards joe biden and his decision 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, and it's a lot of money. I mean, even if you take the smaller amount, seven billion, which is not a small amount at all for a country like Afghanistan, that is a lot of money, a lot of development, a lot of humanitarian assistance. So the thing is that, as I said, it's 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 a, it's a populist move. It's not, you know, it's it's just about it's a collective punishment because the thing is that uh, the Afghan economy was broken long before the U.S. withdrawal, long before the Taliban returned to Kabul. It was very obvious that without this money, uh, people would starve. And uh, the reason for that is that Afghanistan's economy, during the last 20 years, the country's economy was not really independent. Uh, nobody made an effort to build a sovereign independent economy within Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And that's the main problem. But I think a lot of people have forgotten that or don't notice and, you know, just try to tie it to the return of the Taliban. How much of the current humanitarian crisis do you think is a result of American sanctions? To be honest, I think, you know, the total majority of it. It, we can discuss about it if it's more than 80% or 90% or less. But, uh, you know, critics, not just myself, but people uh, who followed this war very closely during the last two decades and beyond that, uh, mainly blame the Americans and also their Afghan allies, of course, the people who ran away in mid-August when the Taliban returned, the people yeah. who fueled corruption, during the last two decades, who enriched themselves. And uh, yeah. Um, this but Imran, was... some of it, I mean, some of it must be the Taliban. You can't say that 80% of what we are seeing, the people going hungry, the people starving, you cannot say that 80% of that is only the American sanctions. Of course, of course, the Taliban have their responsibility, a lot of responsibility. The Taliban are not capable of governing, it seems. They have a lot, you know, a part of the humanitarian crisis. Uh, they have, they have a lot to struggle to, you know, to 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 act like a government has to act, while they themselves were uh, an insurgent group for the last two decades. Do you think that this strategy, the ostensible strategy behind the sanctions? is to put pressure on the Taliban to force them to moderate their policies. Do you think that that is a feasible goal? And do you think it is a goal that is likely to be achieved through sanctions? When it comes to the sanctions, I think that um, it is not just about punishing the Taliban. So we can see that these sanctions mainly hit the average Afghan, you know, not the bad Taliban leader on the top. And uh, the other thing is that... I believe these sanctions, as I said, are some kind of collective punishment because the Americans or Washington or Joe Biden, uh, you know, the American state itself that lost the war in Afghanistan uh, is still not happy with the result. It's it has a broken ego after its withdrawal. And for that, it wants to punish uh, the Afghan population, and probably also the Taliban too. But as I said, these sanctions uh, do not hit the Taliban really. 
it's hard to escape the conclusion that you think the American response has not been coherent. Would that be a, a fair assessment of your position? So, yes, of course. And, you know, these sanctions, they will just isolate Afghanistan more and more. And at the end, you have the situation where, again, the Taliban would benefit from. And you have more and more people saying, hey, what's going on? Uh, we don't have anything to do with 9-11 etc. Also, when it comes to all these human rights issues that needs to be discussed, uh, people on the ground who are affected by these things have a point when they say, what's going on with the Western world, with the US and also European countries? They work very closely with governments, regimes uh, who are responsible for gross human rights abuses, like, for example, Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's you know an example that is a uh, used very often. So what's the problem with the Taliban? Mm. What would you think is a more coherent response that the US could could use? I think uh, the US has to accept some of the reality, some of the things that happened uh, during the last months in Afghanistan and also during the last years. We shouldn't forget that it was the US itself that somehow also was main responsible for the return of the Taliban because Donald Trump or the Trump administration started uh, peace talks with the Taliban a few years ago and signed a deal in Qatar uh, exactly two years ago, almost two years ago. It was at the end of February 2020. And these steps, uh, you know, made the Taliban a lot stronger than before. They felt much more legitimized than before. Uh, because uh, it was Donald Trump who, who, yeah, practically did whatever they wanted to have. Uh, he accepted them as as an equal on the political table. The Taliban said, "Hey, we don't want to talk with uh, with your puppets or whatever in Kabul. We want to talk just to you. Mm -hmm. We don't want to talk to any other Afghans. We want to talk to you, not the government you installed." And what what did the Americans do? They did exactly what the Taliban wanted. And all these things, uh, all these steps uh, made the Taliban stronger. And also, you know, all these things are tied to their return. And you can't you can't punish average Afghans for that. You believe that 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 capitulation in the negotiations was a driving force that allowed them to be seen as a legitimate government? Yes, I think so. I mean... We can discuss about it if it was capitulation or if, if the U.S. was just tired of, of its longest war in Afghanistan. But yeah, uh, the Taliban benefited a lot from that. I mean, it was we have to remember it was also Trump who, after the deal was signed, called uh, the political delegation of the Taliban in Qatar and talked to uh, Mullah Bradar, uh, you know, like, you know, he said things, it was ridiculous. He said things like, you're tough people. And, yeah, you know, we respect that. And, you know, you can really, I, I remember how I read this, this, this report and I could really imagine how Trump was talking to the Taliban leader while... Right. while you, could hear, you could hear his voice in the, in the words. Exactly, you can yeah. hear his voice. Yeah, 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 absolutely, you can hear that. Mm. And you can, uh, it, you have to imagine that at the same time, the official president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani, who was, you know, the, the, the top ally of the Americans in Kabul, didn't have he didn't have such a relationship to Trump. 
you know, he never talked to Trump like uh, Trump talks to Mullah Brodar and vice versa. And that's that's crazy. Mm, it's extraordinary. I, I wonder how, because the, the point of this conversation is to try to look at six months on from the fall of Kabul. I wonder how you assess the situation in Afghanistan now, six months on. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a total mess. It's, it's a total mess. I think uh, we talked a lot now about the humanitarian crisis, but also, as I said, when it comes to Taliban governance and all these things, uh, to the liberties and freedoms of the people, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's terrible and it's, uh, it's not easy. I think the only thing that I heard from many people there is that at least there is no war anymore. Okay, so there is no war anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, there is no war anymore because one side uh, won and took over. So, and the others, and, and one main player on the ground, the Americans and other NATO countries, they left. So, of course, you don't have the same amount of war, but it's dangerous to, to conclude that, you know, everything is fine now. Why I'm saying that is that, you know, I'm living in Europe. Um, I'm also writing a lot about the situation of refugees and these things. And you already hear some politicians or some judges who try to argue that, okay, it seems that in Afghanistan now, everything is fine because the numbers are speaking for themselves. Whoever is governing now, uh, it's not important. Numbers are speaking for themselves, you know, numbers of, uh, as I said, war casualties, all these things decreased, of course. So maybe we can start to deport refugees again to Afghanistan. And that's absolutely not your view, is it? Absolutely not. This is, you know, this uh, is, it's, it's like, uh, it's one of the worst case scenarios for people, Afghans who are living here, to be deported to Afghanistan now, while a lot of Afghans within Afghanistan still try to get out of the country. I wonder if you think that, if I've understood some of the the writings and the talkings on, on television that you've had over the past six months, you've been very active since the fall of Kabul and before. I wonder if uh, I've understood this properly. You seem to believe that this is kind of the calm before the storm, that people think that there is some sort of stability on the ground, because as you say, the main war has come to a conclusion, but actually there is the chance of an explosion at some point if you have a lot of people returning, if you have a lot of people leaving, you have this instability in the inflows and outflows. And of course, there isn't still this uh, recognition of the Taliban. They're still kind of in political limbo. Yes, I believe that um, that's a proper description. The thing is, we we still don't know, because we can't look into the future, we don't know how this explosion will look like. You know, for example, I don't think that, uh, or I think it's not so realistic that we will see more war, like the war we had during the last 20 years or 30 years or 40 years in Afghanistan. I don't think that we will see uh such a situation again in afghanistan why because you know the Afga the the taliban they disarmed uh literally everyone except mm. a few players on the ground so they have the whole monopoly on violence at the moment or most of it of course there's also the afghan uh Dar Darcel, uh iskp they're also there 
But uh, when it comes to other groups, I don't think that that they have the power and the military skills to 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 go against the Taliban. When it comes to foreign countries, because some of these groups try to get foreign support, I also think that on the international stage, it's like many 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 countries from not just the U.S. many many other countries too. They are just tired of the situation in Afghanistan. They are not interested in supporting any group again, giving arms and money. It doesn't seem like that. So I think that uh, the explosion will take place, as you described, because of all the influx and outcome and, uh, of, of course, people's movements and because of the humanitarian disaster and the Taliban regime itself, because the Taliban still do not seem to make compromises they are now in power they do whatever they want and they also depended of the money so you know they try to look nice but who knows what uh, what how the, who knows how the situation will look like in a few months how do you think it will look i mean if they are they are trying on the one hand to pursue this international recognition and this respectability do you think from the perspective of, of the Taliban and how they are perceived by the outside world, do you think that there is a path for them to be recognized? Yes, I think, you know, the Taliban are there and they will be there. They will not vanish during the next years. The Taliban will not vanish during the next years. And I think that they will also be more and more recognized. I remember how six months ago, um, you know, doing some of, some of these interviews, I was saying, you know, you, we will see more recognition and more recognition, and this is actually what uh, what what I still see and what is also already happening. Of course, it's not happening regarding uh, the U.S. because of all the things we already discussed, but there are other countries around the world. For example, you know, most of these regional players uh, they already somehow recognize the Taliban. You can see. Taliban personnel moving to embassies uh, somehow, um, you know, these things happened during the last weeks and months. You hear more and more about that, even in Europe, even in Germany, even in Austria. You hear that, uh, you know, anytime soon, the embassies, uh, you know, the Taliban staff will yeah. also come to the embassies. We saw uh, these talks in Norway, which were criticized by many people, but mm -hmm. they happened. They took place. And uh, you hear more and more politicians, Western politicians also saying that, you know, the Taliban are reality and we have to deal with that. And they're also using, um, you know, the concerns of some of their citizens who are not willing to take more refugees from Afghanistan to say, OK, we don't want them to be here. So we have to deal uh, with the situation in the country and also talk to the people who are ruling. Yeah, I mean, the refugee situation is definitely one of their biggest bargaining chips. Um, another one is, of course, the presence of the ISIS affiliate, which you have already talked about. Their presence there in Afghanistan remains one of the, the Taliban's best bargaining chip because it opens up this space for security cooperation with the international community. And so even, I mean, even the Americans, who, as you say, are probably the, the last country that will recognize them, even they are aware that a Taliban collapse would open up space for an ISIS resurgence. 
exactly i think a few weeks ago months ago i wrote something about the taliban's war on terror and how they could be used uh, or how we could see some kind of cooperation because of what you just described because of the afghan uh, isis cell and uh, how the taliban will use this for two things first of all they could attack or you know go very harshly against different kinds of people and just label them as uh, isis terrorists like it happened in the past with other people other civilians who have been killed and labeled as taliban uh, by the previous regime the taliban could just uh, take over these tactics, these war and terror tactics, and go against uh, anyone uh, in all these provinces, do whatever they want. And uh, that it already happened. And they, you know, we don't know. You, you have to, you have to keep in mind that uh, it's difficult to get proper information out of Afghanistan now because uh, the officials who are talking <laughs> are Taliban officials. Right. So, you know that's that that's one thing and the other thing is as you said uh, because of international recognition they uh, they will use this uh, to bargain and i think um they will probably use this successfully i mean these are two very big chips refugees and isis are two yes. very very powerful um, chips yes and you see you know some taliban spokesmen already talk in such a way to western audiences because they know how they can satisfy them it, it happened in the very first days um i think it was yeah after the after the fall of kabul after the taliban took over uh, you know we have uh, a big tabloid newspaper in austria which is called kronet zeitung so crown newspaper if you translate it you know yeah. they're very very right wing against refugees against islam against all it's like the sun in the uk for example or fox news in the us so one of these journalists uh, somehow went to afghanistan and interviewed um taliban spokesman zabila mujahid in august or in, in it was august or september so and one of the questions he asked him one of the questions he asked him was so when we sent back when we austria when we send back Afghan refugees, um, will you take them? And he he smiled and said, "Of course, we will take them." Yeah, like you know, mm. why shouldn't we cooperate? These are our people. This kind of yeah. talk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Of course, the question is what not whether they'll take them; it's what they will do with them when they've taken them. Exactly, back. that's the point. That's the point. But there's also this kind of like, we will we will teach them, you know? <laughs> yeah, because because there is there is this suggestion that for example and it's it's a wrong one but many people believe it also here in europe that for example most afghan refugees are criminals so uh if if they're responsible for crimes you should send them back and i had a lot of debates because of that because you know you see politicians arguing like that and then i'm asking them also very provocative questions i'm asking them for example let's assume that this person committed a crime does this person does this person deserve a death penalty in Afghanistan? That is a provocative question, Imran. A lot of people would say yes. Yeah, exactly. But you know what I mean, right? I know what you mean. I mean, yeah. it's sort of deliberately provocative. Yeah, you know, a lot of people who'd like to send their own criminals to uh, to of Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, when we 
when we had you on the podcast in September, I asked you whether you thought America's failure in Afghanistan meant the end of the war on terror. At the time, you said it was too early for you to give an answer one way or the other. I, I wonder if you have an answer now. So I think, as I already, as I already mentioned, uh, the war on terror could continue in Afghanistan through the Taliban, uh, who might become a new ally for different countries, for example, against, against ISIS in Afghanistan. But I think, you know, considering other events in other parts of the world, um, for example, especially in Ukraine at the moment, uh, it's still difficult to answer. But I think that uh, the war on terror itself decreased, but it's not really over yet. And then finally, I wonder if we can project a couple of years down the line. As you were saying before, you don't think the Taliban are going anywhere. So two years down the line, they will almost certainly still be in control of Kabul, still be the, the government in effect. Um, what do you think the situation will look like in two years? I think the Taliban will still be in power. The question is, if in two years Afghanistan will, you know, will it be more isolated or less? Will more and more countries start to work with the Taliban or not? When it comes to the regime itself, I mean, they they don't they they don't make a secret out of it. The Taliban that you know all these democracy stuff, all these things, they are over. So um, it will be uh, more and more authoritarian. And also when it comes to the to the inner Afghan debate, um, the question is if the Taliban uh, will start to work with other Afghans too, you know, others who are not part of them. They started to do this already a bit, but in my opinion, it's not really convincing. Uh, but yeah, the question is if they do this or not. And if they don't do it, they will also see, you know, if they if they if they fail on the international level and also within the Afghan context, they will not just isolate the country on the international stage, but also, you know, they will fuel more and more uh, criticism and dissent and, of course, also probably some kind of insurgency uh, towards themselves. It is hard to be optimistic, I should think. I mean, you see how the Taliban dealt so harshly with the groups on its way to taking over Kabul. It seems unlikely that when the eyes of the world are turned away to other crises, like you say, in Ukraine and whatever else comes over the next two years, that they will then treat them better than they have been treating them. Yes, I think so. It's difficult to be optimistic, to be honest. And what I really wanted to add also is that, you know, for, for the Afghan diaspora, which I'm part of, these days are also really, really desperate because of all the things that are happening. And uh, for example, you know, basic things uh, have become really, really difficult. For example, uh, I can't even send some money properly to, to relatives of mine. Uh, it has become real difficult. And uh, because of Joe Biden's decision, it might even become more difficult. So yeah, in these days, especially, it's really uh, hard to stay optimistic. Imran Faraz, thank you for joining us. Thank you.
Imran Feroz in Germany. The crisis in Afghanistan has fallen off the front pages over the past few months, replaced most recently and understandably by the unfolding crisis in Ukraine. But the astonishing end to America's longest war in Afghanistan was only really the beginning of a new chapter for Afghans, one which, as we have heard, is proving to be one of their hardest so far. Thank you very much to our guests. You can find Fazal Minallah Qazizai on Twitter at Fazal Qazizai and keep up with his reporting for New Lines by subscribing to Letters from Kabul at newlinesmag.com forward slash newsletters. Pashtana is also on Twitter at Barak Pashtana. You can follow her nonprofit Learn Afghanistan at LearnAFG and visit their website at learnafghan.org. And you can follow Imran on Twitter at Imran underscore Feroz. You can also subscribe to his new Spotify German language podcast on the rescue operation that airlifted Afghans out of the capital called Inside Kabul Luftbrücke. This week's podcast was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafai. You can subscribe to the New Lines magazine podcast on your favorite podcast app. And of course, you can find more of the best stories from the Middle East and beyond on our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.